Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, the rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. Uh, many of you have noticed that we have a screen here to my right that has been uh, non-functional for uh, quite a few weeks, and just wanted to let you know that, that we realize that, <laughs> and um, we're, we're attempting to address the problem. There's a projector that's not been functioning, and there's been some delays in, in getting that fixed, um, but um, we are expecting that to be repaired soon, so thanks for your patience. With that, uh, I don't know how difficult it is for those on this side to see the screen, but hopefully everybody's able to, to see the screen. Uh, also, we've had <clears throat> some email problems as well. So if you have sent an email to the church office and haven't heard anything back, uh, I promise you we're not ignoring you. It, it could be that the email just didn't get through. Um, or if you have been uh, scheduled or found that you should have been volunteering somewhere and then... Uh, you realize you never got a notice about that. It, it could be that our email to you didn't reach you. So we've been having some issues there. Um, that also is being addressed. So thanks for your patience. We hope to get these things figured out soon. But if you've sent us something and you haven't heard back from us, please uh, let Jamie or me know uh, so that we can uh, address your concern. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is our text today. When I was... Uh, um, in high school and college, I uh, played guitar. I still play guitar, but I, I played guitar more uh, in high school and college. And I, I played in a band um, that was called the Surf Tones in, in high school. And uh, what we did is we, we played these like old surf songs like Wipeout, some of you might know. And uh, there's a song called Pipeline from the 60s. And we did a version of pipeline that was killer. <laughs> I mean, we, we nailed it. Um, and we'd play <laughs> at various places in, in our high school, and that song just got a rise out of people. I mean, it, it was just very well received, and people loved it. And um, there was a talent show at the high school in the springtime, and so we signed up for the talent show, and, and we played, and our picture was in the paper. And um, it was a com competition, so there was a panel of judges who were going to evaluate, you know, who was the best performance, and so we got up there, and, and we played Pipeline, and uh, yeah, I mean, we, we rocked it. We, we killed it. It was good, and people were up out of their seats and dancing, and, um, and I was thinking, with a reaction like this, we're certainly going to win this contest. I mean, hands down, we've got this in the bag. Well, another band came up after that, uh, and they did a great job, too. And they played really well, and they had a front man there who just did a great job, you know, entertaining the crowd. And after uh, the performances were over, it just seemed like there was this long time of waiting for the judges to make a decision. Who's going to win this talent show? And uh, I, I just remember just being obsessed, just wanting so badly to win that event. I wanted the surf tones to get first place really bad. I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And we just waited and waited. And finally, the judges announced their decision, and the surf tones got second place. 
<laughs> that was exactly my response. I was crushed. I was crushed. I, I just, uh, I thought we deserved to win. <laughs> I wanted that reward. I wanted that acknowledgement. I know there's probably some envy there in me to seeing this other band win. And that can be the problem with rewards sometimes, right? You know, when rewards are handed out, some people win, but some people don't. Most people don't. Only some get rewards, others don't. And that was the cause for my great disappointment in high school years ago. Well, we're in a Q&A sermon series here. This is the last of uh, our questions during this series. And the question today is this, what does the Bible say about heavenly rewards? So here's the question. Uh, what does the Bible say about heavenly rewards? Again, this is the, the last uh, of five questions that I've been seeking to answer uh, from the scriptures. Uh, as Brian just announced, Mary and I are, are getting ready to go away for a couple of weeks. And so Pastor Brian will be here for the next two Sundays bringing the word to you. And then after that, we're going to start a new series on the book of Malachi, uh, the minor prophet, the last prophet in the Old Testament. Um, I've subtitled the sermon series, Malachi, uh, A Conversation with God About Spiritual Boredom. So if you've ever experienced just a kind of a complacency and boredom in your walk with God, that might be of interest to you, but that'll begin um, March 12th. Actually, Josh Hollowell will be preaching March 5th, and then that series will start on March 12th. But today, the question is, what does the Bible say about heavenly rewards? There's different opinions about this. And um, some might kind of get a little uneasy about this idea that there might be rewards given to Christians in heaven. And one of the reasons why is because it seems kind of inconsistent with grace, doesn't it? You know, we hear about grace getting from God what we don't deserve, and then we have this idea that some are going to be rewarded in accordance with what they've done. That causes problems. That's what we're going to talk about here today. But another thing I think that causes trouble with this idea is we can't really imagine heaven being a place where some are getting rewarded and others aren't. Where some are getting some kind of commendation and others are being overlooked. We can't imagine the possibility of thinking about being disappointed somehow in heaven because we didn't get a reward. And so we've got to work through these things because as we look in the scriptures, you're going to see here, the Bible does talk about this and does say that there are going to be rewards handed out to Christians on the last day. And our text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, kind of opens up this discussion and gives us some direct teaching about this. So the verses we're going to read are verses 10 through 15. Um, the book of 1 Corinthians, a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Corinth to address a number of problems in that church, questions that had been submitted to Paul, and he wrote this letter in response to address those questions, kind of like a Q&A series, uh, I guess. But here our passages, is, our passages, verses 10 through 15. So please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, 
wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Lord, would you please guide this preacher and bless these people and give us eyes to see the truth of your word and enable us to respond in faith and obedience and trust as you speak to us as your word goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, it seems from this passage that there is such a thing as a reward given to believers uh, in heaven. So, uh, I'm going to explain this by um, giving to you just two points. And and the first point is just something that you you hear us say over and over again here. And and I'm going to say it again. Repetition is is good for our learning. And this is something that's easy for us to forget. But it's something that we, I want to make sure you absolutely get this first point before you get the second point. Okay, so the first point is this, very clearly, salvation is offered by grace apart from your good works. It's the very essence of the gospel. When I say salvation here, I mean, I mean the forgiveness of sins, the knowledge that, that God accepts you, the assurance that you've been reconciled to your creator, the assurance that God's anger and wrath against sin do not rest upon you any longer. The confidence that when you pass from this life, you will enter into glory. You will go to heaven. That's what I mean by salvation. That salvation is something that is offered to people by grace and has nothing to do with your efforts or your morality or your goodness. And so Paul talks about this here in verses 10 and 11 here. He says, according to the, the grace of God, there, there's, our, there's the concept, grace, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So what Paul is saying here is that that he was preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel in various cities, planting churches, he and the other apostles, and they were laying a basic groundwork, a basic doctrinal foundation upon which the church would grow. And so from place to place, Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection was taught and laid down. And so that's what he means by the foundation. Now others are building upon it. That's just others who are coming along and teaching the gospel and planting their own churches and shepherding and building up the kingdom. So others are building on the foundation. But then he goes on and um, he says, let each take care how he builds upon the foundation because in verse 11 No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So what Paul says here is there is only one sufficient foundation for anybody's salvation. And that foundation has nothing to do with human effort, nothing to do with good works. It is a foundation that's built on a person, one person, and it's no person in this room and no person who's lived in, in history aside from one, and his name is Jesus Christ. Do you see that? There's no other foundation. 
for your salvation other than Jesus. If you're building a foundation based on philosophy, you know, some people, that, that's their foundation. They're going to be saved because in their, in their um, wisdom and in their own ability to figure out and solve problems in life, they're going to be saved. Their foundation is philosophy. For others, their foundation is science. They have confidence that science is going to solve all of our problems, heal all of our diseases, maybe even one day make it so that we don't even die or so that people can be resurrected from the dead. And so for many people, science is their foundation. For others, religion is their foundation, their their rituals, their moral efforts, their... um, their baptism, the fact that they are a member of a church, their, their foundation is in some kind of religious observance and they cling to that. That's their foundation for salvation. For others, it's social justice. If we can just get out and get busy in our communities and we battle poverty and we battle racism and we battle all these social ills, eventually we're going to save ourselves through social justice. What Paul says is no, as good as all of those things are and they are good things, none of them is a sufficient foundation for your salvation. It's only Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with human effort. It's Jesus' life, it's Jesus' obedience, it's Jesus' death on the cross, it's Jesus' shed blood, it's Jesus' resurrection, it's Jesus' ascension to the Father, and it's Jesus' promise that one day he's coming back again. That's the foundation. That's grace. That's just another way. What Paul is saying is that salvation is something that God does for us. Salvation is from the Lord, not from sinful people. Grace. That's what the gospel is about, grace. Here's a way to describe grace. If you want to define grace, very easy way to remember it. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C. Salvation is not accomplished by your expense. It's at Christ's expense. Now, there's some of you in this room probably who what what you're doing in your life is you're building a moral resume. You're building a foundation of your good efforts and all of your wise intentions and all of the things that you haven't done because you're not that sort of person and all the plans that you're making for all the good things that you're going to do. And what you're thinking is, on that last day when you appear before God, you're going to present to him your resume. Look, here is my ticket to heaven, God. Look at all that I've done. Here's my foundation. And what God is going to say is, it's not good enough. Because salvation is not something that's accomplished by our works. It's by grace and grace alone. How many times can the Bible say it? Look at this, Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Titus 3, 4, and 5. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. If I ask you someday, do you know you're going to heaven? And you say, yeah, and I say, why? And you say, because I 
did this and that. And, you know, it's just, you're not getting it. It's not your works. It's not your efforts. It's not your morality. It's not your religion. Romans 11 says this, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you're going to receive grace, you can't rely on your works. They're mutually uh, incompatible for the purpose of salvation. I I like to tell this story. You probably heard me say this before, but I I think it sums it up well. It's picture um, uh, a guy passes away and he's standing before the gates of heaven and there's God in heaven and he says, you want to get into heaven? And the guy says, yes. And God says, well... You need a thousand points to get into heaven. So tell me, how have you done? And the guy says, well, I was faithful to my wife. And God says, well, that's one point. And he says, "Um, well, I spent a lot of money helping the poor. God says, well, that's two points. And the guy says, well, I never got addicted to any substance. I didn't have an alcohol or drug problem. God says, well, that's three points. You've got to get a 1,000. And the guy gets frustrated, and he says, my goodness, for the grace of God, nobody could get in here. And God says, congratulations, you've just received a 1,000 points. <laughs> just a simple story to illustrate the Bible's emphasis on our need to turn from our, our works, to turn from our own efforts in order to be saved, in order to be forgiven, in order to be granted entrance into his glory. So, I mean, some, you know, you might say that just seems so easy. It, you know, you don't have to strive to get into heaven. You, you don't have to work at it to get God to, to love you. No, no, because Jesus has done enough. His work is sufficient. That's why he's the foundation. So we might ask, well, why aren't more people Christians then? It's, it's so easy. It's so easy to become a Christian. Well, yeah, I mean, it is easy and it's hard. I, you know, I, I might respond to that by asking this. Is it easy for an army to surrender in battle? In one sense, yeah, because all the army has to do is lay down its arms and wave the white flag and, and give up on their efforts and entrust themselves into the hands of the other army. I mean, that's easy in one sense. But you know, in another sense, that's really hard, isn't it? Because what that army has to do is say, I give up on myself. It takes a profound humbling for a person to say, I can't save me. I can't save myself. The first step to becoming a Christian is you wave the white flag of surrender before God. And you say, God, I, I give up. I give up trying to get you to love me. I give up trying to obey your standard. I give up trying to achieve holiness so that you'll let me into heaven. I give up. And God says, wonderful. Now turn to my son and you're in. That's grace. And some of you, maybe you need to, you need to wave that white flag. You haven't done it yet. You're still striving, trying to get God to accept you in your own efforts. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just acknowledged your your moral bankruptcy and your need for a Savior? Have you gone before God and done that? Or are you relying on your religion or on science or on philosophy or on some other thing? 
go to God and receive from him the grace that he is offering to you freely and you can have assurance that your sins are forgiven and that God loves you and accepts you and that you are heaven bound. It's a glorious, wonderful thing that separates Christianity from all other religions. All other religions say, I'm obeying God so that I'll get him to love me. Christianity says, God has already loved you, so now obey him. So that's the first thing. I hope this is clear. Salvation is offered by grace apart from your good works. And yet we go on, and this is so important always, to hold all of Scripture together as best as we can in our minds, and we find also that the Bible says this, rewards are given by grace according to your good works. And we just saw that in this passage here in 1 Corinthians 3. So let me be clear. By reward here, I am not talking about salvation. That's only by grace. And when we as Christians get to heaven and we look at our Savior face to face, that, that experience of being in the presence of Christ will be sufficient for our eternal satisfaction. We will find nothing deficient in that for all eternity and will be gloriously happy forever. That's the promise for every single Christian. And yet at the same time, what the Bible says is that there are varying degrees of rewards that are given to Christians based on the quality of their Christian lives. The way they've lived, the way they've given themselves, the way they've obeyed Christ. So let's look back at our text here, and I'll show you in more detail uh, what Paul is saying. Look at verse 12, and you'll see that Paul now begins talking more about this building that is taking place on the foundation that he and the apostles have laid. So he says in verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation, the foundation of the gospel the foundation of Jesus Christ, if anyone builds with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So we've got basically two categories of materials here. Um, Gold, silver, precious stones. What what are those? Those are durable, lasting, strong materials. Those are the things that were used to build Solomon's temple, actually, in the Old Testament. But the other category is uh, wood, hay, and straw. And so these are things much less durable. Uh, These are things that are very easily burned up in a fire, gold, silver, and stone. Not not so easy. A house can burn up, but if it's a house made of stone, even when the fire is over, uh, the, the stones are still there. They're lasting. They're durable. And so what Paul says here is on the day, verse 13, each one's work will become manifest. The the work your devotion, your obedience to Jesus throughout your life is going to be made public. It's going to be exposed on the day, that day that's referring to the day of the Lord when Jesus comes again. Your work will be disclosed and revealed by fire and that fire is going to test what sort of work each one has done. It's going to test the quality of your Christian life. Verse 14, Paul goes on now to distinguish between these two groups. If the work that you have done is built on the found, 
uh, that has been built on the foundation, if that work survives, you will receive a reward. In other words, if the work that you have done is gold, silver, and precious stones, it's shown to be durable and to be lasting, a reward will be given to you. That's the result. If, if you are found to be a person who has um, sought first the kingdom of God and the things that you have done have been more for the glory of Christ rather than yourself, that the fruit of the Holy Spirit has been borne out in your life. And of course, none of us does that perfectly, but to the degree that that has happened in your life, what Paul is saying is a reward will be given to you. But in verse 15, we see if anyone's work is burned up, that is, his work has been wood, hay, and straw, it's not durable. Those would be works that are done in uh, self-promotion and envy and, and those works that we might do st- simply to, to build up our own kingdom, works done in self-indulgence, those works will be burned up. And then in verse 15 there, it says, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, see, it's clear here that what Paul is talking about is the body of believers. He's not comparing believers to unbelievers, because the person who suffers loss will himself be saved. This is a Christian but it's a Christian who is not going to get the same rewards that will be given to the person whose works are gold, silver, and precious stones. Saved as only through fire. You can just imagine someone whose house is burning down and he runs out of the house with nothing but the clothes on his back, leaves all his belongings behind. He gets out of the house. He's saved, but everything is burned to the ground. And apparently there are going to be some Christians who will be in that situation. Their works will uh, be shown to be, to some degree, wood, hay, and straw. Now, I know when you hear this, it just might make you feel a little uneasy. And so this is why we don't hear a lot about heavenly rewards. Uh, I want to encourage you to know that the purpose for which this was written is not to make you fearful of the final day. And I know that's probably the way we're all feeling. I'm not a very good Christian, you're thinking. I I haven't done things very well. All my works are going to be burned up. Well, I think this passage is written not to make you afraid, but to encourage you. And I'll explain more about that in a moment. But let me just remind you again of the gospel. If you're a Christian, there's no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. This passage is not written so that you can be afraid that you're going to be shamed or humiliated on the judgment day. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. Here's what's going to happen for every single Christian on that day. Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from your eye. Death will be no more. There's going to be no more mourning or crying or pain for any believer in Christ. Even if your works are found to be burned up, this will still be your experience as the former things have passed away. Jesus has already borne the wrath that you deserve. You won't have to face that condemnation. Every believer will experience the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We all have that hope. But at the same time, some believers are going to experience more joy than others. For some believers, heaven is going to be a more pleasurable, more glorifying, more enjoyable experience 
than it will be for others. It won't be the same for every single person. Here's Charles Hodge. He says, the scriptures teach that the happiness or blessedness of believers in a future life will be greater or less in proportion to the service of Christ in this life. Those who love little, do little. Those who do little, enjoy less. So you might say, well, Bob, you know, I don't know, I don't really like this. Um, Where else in the Bible does it talk about rewards? Good question. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all be appear, this is referring to Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Referring to believers, we're all going to be in a position to receive a response from God based on the way we've, we've lived our lives. 1 Timothy 6, speaking specifically of the rich, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Here's Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Why? Because your reward is great. Those suffering abuse for the name of Christ will receive a reward. So I'm sure there are all sorts of questions uh, in your minds about this, and there are questions in, in my mind about this. So let me just anticipate a few. Some questions that you might be having about this idea that rewards will be given in heaven. First of all, will rewards lead to selfishness? Doesn't it seem like that would be a likely um, result of this, that, that we would begin then to do good works just for the sake of what we might get out of them, that the good works that we do now are all for self-interest, and we lose the sense of doing it for Christ's sake, and we do them for, for our sake. Could, could that, is that what this is going to do? Do we reject this teaching because of this possibility? Well, no, it, it, it doesn't have to work this way, and I'm sure there's that temptation in all of us, but it doesn't have to be this way. C.S. Lewis has given, I think, a, a good illustration of this as he thinks of marriage. He says, if a man were to pursue a woman and long to be married to her perhaps eventually, but he did it because he knew that the woman was rich and that if he married her, he would get her inheritance and he would benefit in that way, then yes, this would be true. He would be pursuing a reward in a selfish kind of way. But that's not what these rewards that are talked about in Scripture have in mind. That's not what this is like. It's more like a man pursuing a woman, sending her flowers, taking her out for dinner, speaking to her softly and sweetly and affirming her so that he might marry her one day. If a man pursues a woman and the reward for his pursuit is marriage, do we call him selfish? Well, no, because the woman that he's been pursuing is in herself the reward. And when we serve Christ, when we pursue him in this life, the reward we're going to get is more of him 
That's the promise. The more we pursue Christ in this life, the more we get from him in the next life. Um, you know, the Bible talks a lot about what these rewards might look like, and this is a little mysterious. You know, what actually will these rewards be? Well, the Bible talks a lot about crowns, that believers for different things will get different crowns. Well, it's very interesting in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, it talks about these elders who are around the throne of Jesus, and they all have crowns, but do you know what they're doing with their crowns? They're taking them off and casting them down before the throne of Jesus. Their crowns are their rewards, but they're using their rewards and giving them back to Jesus. So the rewards that we're given are not self-centered rewards, they're Christ-centered rewards. In some way, they're going to enhance and increase our love and devotion and worship of our Savior. So, no, we're not talking about a selfish pursuit of rewards. Well, you might ask this too, won't this lead to envy? Kind of like the feeling that I had when our band didn't win the uh, talent contest, being envious of somebody else getting the reward. Is, is that what it's going to be like? We're going to be looking at those who are more holy than us, those with more crowns than us, and just resenting them for all eternity. <laughs> well, no, no. Um, I'm going to refer to Jonathan Edwards for some help here. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest uh, Christian theologians, philosophers in, in American history, anyway, and um, Edwards says this in response to this question, it will not be a grief to any of the saints to see those that are higher than themselves in holiness and likeness to God, for all shall have as much love as they desire in heaven, and as great manifestations of love as they can bear. They're going to be so full of love, and so all shall be fully satisfied. That's what I've been trying to tell you about. This is the case for all believers. All believers will have pleasures forevermore. And where there is perfect satisfaction, there can be no reason for envy. Every believer will be perfectly satisfied in the face of Christ. And if you're perfectly satisfied, you don't have a desire to be more satisfied and you don't envy those who have more crowns. That's Edward's argument. And I think it's convincing. So no, rewards in heaven don't have to lead to envy. Well, how about to pride? Don't rewards in heaven lead to, to pride? That is, as we're in heaven, we're thinking of all the wonderful things we've done and how great we are because of all the crowns we have. Is that a temptation in, in heaven? Well, no, because again, remember, we're in, we're in heaven here. We're talking about a, a place where all sin has been purged, where we're totally transformed. We've all been changed. We're not going to think then like we think now. Our perspective on things are going to be entirely different. So uh, Edwards, again, again addresses this point. He says this, the saints that are highest in glory will be the lowest in humbleness of mind, for their superior humility is part of their superior holiness. The reason they have so many crowns is because of how holy they are, but part of what makes them holy is their humility. Though all are perfectly free from pride, yet as some will have greater degrees of divine knowledge than others and larger capacities to see more of their own comparative littleness and nothingness, and therefore will be the lowest and most abased in humility. The more crowns you have, the more humble you are, the less prideful you are. So I, I think there's ways to kind of work through 
these questions that we might have about rewards in heaven. The scriptures are clear. This is what's gonna happen. And I think the purpose for which they have been placed in the Bible for us, friends, is so that you, not only in grateful response to God for the grace that he has given you in your salvation, that's a perfectly legitimate and good motivation for obedience, and maybe should be the primary motivation for obedience, but it's not the only motivation for obedience. Another motivation would be rewards in heaven. And it doesn't have to be selfish, it doesn't have to be envious, it doesn't have to be prideful. It's because you want to serve Jesus. You want to obey him and bring glory to him. You want more of him, so you obey him more now so that you're not a slacker in your obedience to Christ. Jeremiah, there's a passage in Jeremiah that says, cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness. Are you slack? Are you, have you been slacking lately? <laughs> Rewards are given to us here so that we'll be motivated, so that we'll, we'll repent of our complacency and our boredom with God. And deny ourselves, deny, uh, die to ourselves, sacrifice ourselves in, in service to him. And here's another way I think this should be really encouraging to you. And that is that the, the promise of rewards in heaven tells us that, that there are going to be a whole lot of people in heaven who are receiving a whole lot of rewards that receive virtually no acknowledgement in this life. People who have just been overlooked because the things that they have been doing for Jesus in this life have, are of no value to the world. I, I think when we get to heaven, there's gonna be a whole lot of unknown names that, were, that are full of crowns. It, it might not be the people, the famous Christians that, that, that you know, that they might not be the ones getting the most attention for their obedience to Jesus in this life. I think of a friend of mine, Frank West, who, um, I knew in high school and college, still know him, lives in Indianapolis, and uh, he and his wife gave birth to a daughter who turned out to be severely handicapped. Um, she, she can't see, she can't eat, she can't walk, she can't even sit up. And they've cared for her for 20 years. They, they could have had an abortion. They could have shipped her off and had someone else take care of her but they've cared for her for all these years. On that day, I'm pretty confident they're gonna get a reward for that. How about um, a woman that I knew at Covenant of Grace Church in St. Louis, uh, African-American elderly woman who in a room in her house had on the walls surrounding her pictures of people in the church and she would go in that room and kneel down and pray for them and then look at their picture. We look at one picture, pray, look at the next picture and pray and go all the way around the room, praying for all the people in her church. Now who, who, who saw that? Who sees her do that? I don't think she has a book on Amazon. I don't think she's speaking at Gospel Coalition in April, but she's gonna get a reward for her devotion to Christ and her praying for the saints. How about some of our missionaries? 
uh, that we support here at, at New Life and, and other missionaries, people who are working hard in distant, dark lands, and they're preaching the gospel, they're teaching the word, they're calling people to faith, and they're seeing hardly any fruit whatsoever. No conversions. They, they don't come back with these dramatic stories of all the people who have come to faith through their ministry. They, they just don't have them. And nobody's given them any attention, but they go back year after year after year, and they preach the gospel, and they build on the foundation. They're getting a reward. And how about some of you here at New Life? Those of you serving this church, serving in the nursery, teaching Sunday school, doing things behind the scenes that nobody sees, you haven't been thanked for a long time. And you ask yourself, why am I doing this? Well, it's not right that you haven't been thanked, and I'm not trying to excuse that if that's the case. But I would say, don't give up, keep going, because one day you're going to get a reward. God's going to reward you. And that's going to be a glorious day. So, friends, don't give up. Don't turn from the Lord don't long for the applause of the, of, of the world. Long for the applause of God. And you will get it on that day. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that um, you provide this incentive for us, Father. Um, Lord, I, I pray that you would protect us from selfish motives and envy and pride. Help us, Lord, to be people who pursue you out of gratefulness for the grace that you've given us in Jesus for saving us from our sins. But Lord, I pray that this would be a congregation of people who are rewarded well on that last day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.